0: Let's start reading in verse 1. Now it came about when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe. And command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priests are standing firm. And carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. And thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning to get into your heart. Your word revealing your heart, teaching us things about you. And that's what we're interested in here today, Lord. We're not interested in religion. We're not interested in playing games. We're not interested in being social. We're interested in you and your kingdom purposes, your plan, your heart made manifest, your love, your character, what you accomplish in lives. Lord, so many of us here have had our lives radically changed by your grace and your love. I pray for those here that seems like they haven't, that, Lord, you'd reach down and you'd touch them today. You'd pursue them. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to seek and to save that which was lost. Let each one be found by you today, Lord. Teach us about yourself and what's important to you now as we get into your word. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to this portion in the text now where they're going to finish up their crossing over the Jordan River and they're going to set up their first camp there in the land of Canaan. And as we approach this text, it's important that we ask the question that we ought to always ask when we study the Bible. When you study the Bible, depending on which methodologies you have learned or taught yourself, there's various questions that you ask when approaching the text. But the most important question to ask is, what does this text teach me about God? That is the primary thing that you want to ask. The first question is not, what should I do? Or what does it mean to me or how should I respond? That's later on. But the first question that one wants to ask when studying the Bible is what does this text teach me about God? Because a book is a book about God. Amen? Amen? And one of the things that this historical account teaches us about God is that he has perfect timing. You need to know that. We've been talking about the timing of God here in the book of Joshua. And it seems at times as though God's timing doesn't line up with ours. And so it doesn't. And the reason is because our timing is off. Amen? Amen. Admit it. Our timing is off. If we find ourselves out of sync with the Lord, guess who's got their timing off? It's you and I. The Lord's timing is absolutely perfect, though it may seem that He loves those 11th hour rescues. And we talked about the dynamic of that last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to get the CD. But we're told in verse 20 of the text, if you'll just skip down for a minute, or excuse me, verse 19, not verse 20. It says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho, the 10th of the first month on the Hebrew calendar. If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, don't do it now, but later on, but you've read it in your one-year Bibles, you'll see there that the Lord had them select the Passover lamb when they were in slavery in Egypt on the 10th of the first month. Remember the Lord was going to deliver them. They having selected the Passover lamb, spilt the blood of the lamb, put it on their doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over them and they would come out of Egypt, out of slavery. And that was the 10th of the first month on the Hebrew calendar exactly 40 years prior. The Lord had told them that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and from that day that they selected the Passover lamb until this day when they come into victory and into the fullness and into the promises was exactly 40 years to the day. Now you need to know that because God has made you and I some promises in our lives. And there was a day where we selected the Passover lamb, so to speak, where we recognized Jesus Christ as the unique Savior of the world, and we said, yes, this is the one. And we applied the blood to our lives, so to speak, the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And there's times in the Christian life where we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And there's times where we seem to wander and where we're not sure what's happening and where we ought to go. But you need to know that God is absolutely faithful and that God is bigger than our mistakes. Amen. We've said it just about every week of the book of Joshua and we shall continue by His grace. God is bigger than our mistakes. And isn't it interesting the sovereignty of God. Israel did everything they could to mess this gig up. Everything they could in the wilderness. Whining and complaining and moaning and groaning and rebelling and wandering and disbelieving and turning away. They did everything they could to mess the gig up. But the Lord... Worked it all together for good and brought them into the land of Canaan forty years to the very day, as he said he would. God is so faithful. Philippians one six says that he is faithful to complete the work that he's begun in us. Amen. And that verse in Romans eight twenty eight that God is able to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? Are you called according to his purpose? If you love him and you're called, then you can be absolutely sure that he will work everything in your life together for good. Even those big messes. He is a God who exchanges beauty for ashes. He's a God that restores the years that the locust has eaten. He is the one that is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we can even ponder or think about asking him. God does wonderful things. And though they tried desperately to mess up the whole gig, the Lord brought them in 40 years to the very day. So this text teaches us that God has perfect timing. The second thing that it teaches us, and we'll speak about this at greater length, is this, that God likes to be remembered. That is not some weird thing like you and I, some egocentric strange thing. Don't ascribe the fallenness of man to God. God likes to be remembered, and that's right, and that's good. And He likes to have us mark and celebrate and memorialize or commemorate the great and awesome things that He does. We see from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation that God is always instructing His people that they ought to remember Him, and they ought to remember the wonderful things that He has done. By the way, that's why we worship the Lord, for who He is and what He has done. And sometimes in life, when things get hairy, when things get scary, when there's confusion, when we feel confounded, we need to stop and remember who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. And at those times, the Holy Spirit of God will begin to work in your life and He'll change your grumbling to praising. He'll change your complaining to commemorating who the Lord is and what He has done. And there are those moments in life where we need to be obedient to the Word of God and stop and recall and remember, and that is what this chapter is all about. God commanded the people to set up these memorial stones. He commanded them to do so because, like us, they tended to forget about who God was and what God had done in their midst. I'm amazed in my own life at how quickly... I forget the things that the Lord has done. I'm even ashamed, really, when I think about it, about how quickly I forget what the Lord has done. You know, one time my wife and I, when we first got married, we were living in a little converted garage down near the beach, and and it was such a blessing, and the Lord was doing so many wonderful things in our lives, and we determined in our hearts that we were going to get a beautiful jar and and cut up little pieces of paper and write down every wonderful thing the Lord had done and was doing in our lives, and we put it in that jar and save it up, and then in those moments where life was difficult, we'd empty out that jar, and we'd read those things, and we'd be reminded, and we'd worship the Lord. We were going to do that, but we forgot I am amazed. I am ashamed at how quickly and how often I forget to remember who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. I want you to turn very quickly to the book of Deuteronomy. You'll be getting there in just a few days in your one-year Bible reading. Keep your finger in Joshua. Go quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy, by the way, being the Old Testament book that was most often quoted by Jesus, being one of my absolute favorite books in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6, look at this warning as we start reading in verse 10. Moses speaking to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land says, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Verse 12. Then watch yourself Lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Listen to that warning. The Lord was going to bring them into all sorts of abundance, into all sorts of good things. He was going to bring them into fat and fatness and the promises and the blessings. Moses warned the people, when you are experiencing the goodness of God, watch yourself. Lest ye forget. Moses being very aware of human nature here. Watch yourself. And that's a warning of the text today for us. We need to watch ourselves because people, by way of the fact that we live in this place, we are incredibly blessed humans by God. Each and every one of us is incredibly blessed. If you are sitting here today with air in your lungs, you are blessed among the people's. If we were to look at all the world and the situations of all people, we are of an infant, just an infinitesimal tiny portion that are this blessed in the whole world. It's not because of anything we did or anything we deserve. Just the grace of God, we are so incredibly blessed. And church, we need to watch ourselves lest we forget the Lord. And so because of that fact that we so easily forget, God commands the nation of Israel to set up two piles of stones, memorials, if you will, that would help them remember. Now go back to Joshua. We will be back to Deuteronomy, so you might want to keep your bookmark there. Going back to Joshua, there were going to be two piles of stones, two separate piles that would help them to remember. The first bunch of stones would be taken from the middle of the Jordan River, where if you were with us last week, you remember the Ark of God is there in the middle representing the power, the person, and the presence of God. All the nations, some two and a half million of them, passed by that Ark of God into the land of Canaan. And there were these 12 men who were selected. We read about them last week in verse 12 of Joshua 3, and now we see them again. They selected these stones... And they were to take these stones and put them on their shoulders. Now, you can imagine these are pretty big stones. Because if they're going to make a memorial that is going to be a memorial to coming generations, they're not going to use little rocks, you know what I mean? A little stack of stones like that, you know what I mean? They're going to be pretty big rocks. These men picked up these rocks from the middle of the Jordan River, and they were to carry them on their shoulders, again, denoting that it would be large, for eight miles. I mean, just think about that. Because Gilgal, where they're going to camp out, is eight miles from where they cross the Jordan River. They would carry these stones for eight miles. And then they would set them up in this place called Gilgal. Eight miles from the Jordan and just two miles from Jericho, which would be the first place that they would conquer. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. But Gilgal, this place It is of some importance. It is where Israel would set up their base of operations. They, they They would stage their military operations from there. It would be the headquarters. Joshua would go out from there and frequently return to there. So it was very important for Joshua, strategically speaking, at this moment in the nation's history. It also became important as a center for the nation in the generations to come. In 1 Samuel 11, we read that it was in Gilgal where Israel crowned its first king. In 2 Samuel 19, we read that that is where David returned to and was welcomed back after Absalom's rebellion was put down. In 1 Samuel 7, 16, we read that the prophet Samuel chose to minister in Gilgal, among other places. And this is kind of neat in 2 Kings chapters 2 and 4. We read that in the days of Elijah, there was a school of prophets in Gilgal. That's a school I'd like to go to. A school of prophets while Elijah is a prophet. And that was in Gilgal. This spot, the first place where they settled down, where they set up camp in the land of abundance, became very important to the nation in the future. Now, Gilgal in Hebrew means circle or rolling. Circle or rolling, Gilgal in Hebrew. But the Lord ascribes a particular meaning for Israel to that word at this time. Peek ahead in the next chapter, if you would. Joshua chapter 5, verse 9. Joshua 5, verse 9. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. It meant in Hebrew rolling or circle, but the Lord ascribed this particular meaning for these particular people at this particular time, meaning I have rolled away your reproach. That thing which was previously shameful, that thing from the past which was bad and wrong, that area in which you were enslaved, that place that spoke of defeat, that place that spoke of terror and fear, where your backs were whipped and your skin was broken and your sons were murdered. I have rolled away the memory of that place. I have rolled away the reproach of that thing the Lord says. Because why? Because he's bringing them into newness. He brought them out of Egypt that he might bring them into Canaan. He brought them out of slavery that he might bring them into freedom. He brought them out of lack that he might bring them into abundance. He brought them out of despair that he might bring them to a place of rejoicing. And so the Lord does in our lives through Jesus Christ. We were previously to confessing our sins to Jesus and asking Him to be our Lord and Savior. We were enslaved to sin. There were certain ways and times where we were just enslaved. We knew it was wrong. We knew it was destructive. And yet we were unable to keep ourselves from it. If you're here today and you're apart from Jesus Christ and you don't think you're enslaved to sin, your opinion is contrary to the Bible. And guess what? The Bible is the anvil upon which the critics for the last 2,000 years have hammered. And the Bible stands before us intact, and the hammers have long since been shattered. If your opinion is contrary to the Bible, guess who will win? Your opinion will wither and fade away like the grass, but the Bible, the Word of God, stands forever. And it says that previously coming to Jesus Christ, we were lost in our sins and we were enslaved to sin. And when we recognize that and we realize that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and He died on the cross to forgive our sins and we ask Him to forgive us, we receive Him into our hearts, then we are brought out of slavery and He brings us into freedom. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, If any person is in Christ, they are a brand new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. Can I get a witness? The old things have passed away. All things have become brand new in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that you don't have any more problems. Jesus didn't lie to you. He said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It doesn't mean that you don't have problems, but it does mean that you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. I want you to turn to Isaiah 54 very quickly. Keep your finger here. Keep your finger in Deuteronomy, and now go to Isaiah 54. It's a very complicated Bible study. (laughs) Isaiah 54, speaking about the Lord rolling away our reproach. These were the words of the Lord to the nation of Israel concerning the time when they would be put out from the land, still future from the book of Joshua, when they would seem to be despised and rejected because of their disobedience to the Lord, and yet His promises to be faithful to them and bring them back. But, but listen how the Lord encourages them. And think about your own life in Isaiah 54 verse 1. It says, shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? Shout for joy, O barren one, you have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread broad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be put to shame, neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Yisrael, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. Apply that to your life spiritually. That there have been times, or it might be that time right now, where you are spiritually barren. Where it seems as though all the decisions that you've made in your life and all the turns to the right and to the left have brought you to the place of barrenness. Where you don't see any fruitfulness in your life. Where there's no abundance, there's no fullness, and you just feel as though you're dry and withering and daily withering. And then look at who the Lord is. The Lord says that he will roll away the shame of the youth. That he will restore the years that the locust has eaten. That he will make you fruitful. That he will cause you to multiply. That he will pour out blessings upon you. That he will cause you to no longer feel humiliated. And that he will cause you to forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. For he is yours. Listen to who the Lord is. He's the one that redeems lives. He's the one that restores. He's the ones that make brand new. And can you imagine the feeling of Israel when they came to Gilgal, having crossed over the Jordan, remembering all the previous failures, generations of heartbreak, generations of brokenness, stories of unbelief, of disobedience, of rebellion, of barrenness. And now, undeservedly, they sit in Gilgal. And remember, it was the time of the harvest, so there would have been before them fields ripened unto the harvest. There would have been figs hanging from the trees and pomegranates. There would have been olives abounding. There was more water than they'd ever seen before. They were in the place of fullness, and it wasn't because they were a great people. It was because they had a great God. And so you and I have a great God. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you are experiencing times of dryness and barrenness and brokenness, hold on, help is on the way. The Lord is faithful. He is always faithful. And His timing is perfect. He is the one who rescues and restores and rolls away the shame of our youth. Amen. Back to Joshua 4 now. Concerning these memorials then that they would set up, these piles of stones to remember this momentous occasion, were given in the text three reasons why they would do so. The first reason why they were supposed to set up this memorial is because this generation entering to the land would encounter some difficult times ahead, times where they would be discouraged, times where they would feel disillusioned times where they would feel overwhelmed, even though they're now in the promises. They're in that place of fullness and fatness. They're right where the Lord wants them to be. But even in the midst of the will of God, there are those times that seem overwhelming. There are those times where we feel disillusioned and discouraged. And that is why they were to set up this memorial, these 12 stones stacked up in Gilgal, because they would come there frequently. And there's going to be some battles, not that many, but there's going to be some battles that they lose. And they would come back to Gilgal with their tails between their legs and they would see the memorial stones and go, that's right. I feel beat up now. I feel discouraged now, but God is faithful. I can't forget that. I see those stones. It reminds me that he brought us out of Egypt and through the wilderness and across the Jordan and into the promises. And having brought us thus far, he will take us that far. He's not going to leave us here. He's not going to forsake us. And so they would need a reminder in the days to come. Even when they would return to Gilgal after victory, they would need to see the reminder that they would remember, oh, it wasn't us. It's not our victory, it's the Lord. It wasn't our strength, it was the strength of the Lord. It's not our glory, it's glory to God. And these 12 stones would remind them of those things. And Christian, we need those stones in our lives. We need those sure reminders because there will be difficult times. And you need something to remind you of the faithfulness of God. That he'll never leave you or forsake you, as Jesus said. He will always be with you, lo, even until the end of the age. And then there are going to be times of incredible fatness in your life. Times where you are blessed. Perhaps the Lord might make you wealthy. There's no sin in being wealthy. Did that for Abraham. He would have been a billionaire in our world. Same with Job. But in those times, you need to have a sign where you can look and remember, it is the Lord that gave me these things. It is the Lord that has blessed me. I have not done this myself. And so because of difficult times and good times, every generation, every Christian needs a memorial, so to speak, where we set up in our lives at that perfect time and we say, I never want to forget what the Lord has done. Right now and thus far. The second reason they would need to set up those stones is for the generation to come. The generation to come, their children, would be quick to forget their instruction and their faith. And so the stones were set up for the children. We already saw that in verses 6 and 7. But look now in verse 21 of Joshua 4. Joshua 4:21. 4, and Joshua said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel, cross this Jordan on dry ground. Very important part of the story, if you were with us last week. Very big part of the testimony on dry ground, not with muddy feet. Not slipping and sliding, but with sure footing. Verse 23. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. And so they were to set up these stones that the next generation, the kids who were being born, they would see them and they would say, Daddy, what are those about? And Daddy had the obligation to say, that is so that we will never forget who the Lord is and what the Lord has done that we were facing overwhelming odds at the Jordan and a people who are no more numerous than us and bigger than us and the Lord brought us through and was absolutely faithful and gave us a and gave us a victory. That's what it's about, son. Who God is and what God has done. And the fathers of Israel would have the obligation to communicate those things to the next generation. And the Jews are very big on this, always have been historically, still are. And the reason that they are is because the Bible is very big on this. We read over and over and over again in the Bible where it says, and it shall come about when your children ask. So so the parents have two obligations. They're to structure things so that children ask questions about God. I like that. They're to structure things in such a way that their kids ask questions about the Lord and then the parents are to have a ready answer to give to the children. We see it over and over again in the Bible. In the book of Psalms, the psalmist is continually saying, I will praise thee, Lord, and I will praise thy greatness to the next generation. And unto the youth I will praise your name. And I will declare all thy wondrous works to the next generation over and over again. And that heritage is passed down to you and I as Christian parents. Perhaps you're not parents. Yes, you will be someday. Or just the next generation. There's an obligation given to us. One of the things I love about our church is it's multi-generational. I love that. You have the seasoned, as Pastor G calls you. And you've got the young ones. And we all mix together. Listen, God is very purposeful in the way He's designed our church. Have you noticed that we don't have singles ministry, young married ministry, seasoned people's ministry, over 50 ministry, between 30 and 31 ministry, 34 to 38 ministry, 72 to 79 ministry? We don't have those. Because the Lord has said we are to be integrated generationally at this church. That's why we have home groups. And we, we resist segregating them. Many times people come and say, well, we want a young person's home group. I say, you're going to have to find one at a different church. We want a seasoned person's home group. (laughs) God has given us a vision that the old shall be with the young and the old shall teach the young and the young should receive from the old and the young can inspire the old with their zeal and their passion and the Lord does a wonderful thing. Never in the Bible do we see that there's a segregation of generation. Rather, there's to be an integration and a communication and an imparting of what the Lord has done from generation to generation, and thus He has structured our church that way. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you would. Again, this is stated many times throughout the Scriptures, but perhaps nowhere more potently than here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting verse 1. Now this is a commandment. The statutes and the judgments that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess. So that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord your God to keep all the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. We see that multi-generational statement there by Moses. Verse 3. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael in Hebrew, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, look, Verse 7, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, meaning they shall always be near to you and they shall be in your mind. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, so on and so forth. Verse 12, then watch yourself lest you forget the Lord. So that generation was to remember, and that generation was to be very, very purposeful in imparting who the Lord was and what He did to the next generation. I'm asking us as a church to be mindful of that. I'm asking us, maybe us doesn't work anymore. I turned uh, 35 on Thursday. Uh, I'm asking you who are young, you who are young, to have humble hearts. I'm asking you to esteem those who are older in our congregation, those in the faith. I'm asking you to seek them out because they've got wisdom to impart to you and I. They've known the Lord for longer. They've seen more of His faithfulness. They have a greater depth and understanding if they walked with the Lord those years and they've been in the Word. I'm asking those of you who are young to cherish and to value those who are older and to seek to learn from them. I'm asking you who are older. Wow, I'm stuck in the middle. (laughs) I'm asking you who are older to be purposeful in imparting to the next generation the things of the Lord, of reminding us. Do you have stories about how God previously moved on this coastline? We want to hear them. Do you have stories about the Jesus movement in the early 70s? We want to hear them. We want to hear what the Lord has done. That's biblical, that's right, and that's good. Now, though this generation was commanded to do so with their children, very sadly, they failed utterly at it. I want you to turn to Judges now. Judges is a book just after Joshua. Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, and we'll see here that those generation was so clearly told to impart to their children who the Lord is and what they had done to point them to that memorial. They failed in it, evidence here, right after the book of Joshua in Judges 2, starting in verse 8. Judges 2, 8. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Heretz in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That's a a way of saying died. And there arose another generation. Okay, here's the next generation. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel, that next generation, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtara. This is Unbelievable that previous generation had seen so much. They had seen more than than any other generation. They had so much to give, so much to impart, but somehow in the abundance of the promised land, in their comfort, in their wealth, whatever it was, they failed to impart it to the next generation. And just one generation later, just one, not a bunch of generations, just one generation later, they forgot the Lord. And it's not as though they just became atheists. They worshipped other gods. They worshipped the gods of the people who were in the land, those false gods, the Baals and the Asherah. And with those gods worshipping, they would get involved in all sorts of sexual immorality and eventually they would sacrifice their children to the Baal. This generation would kill their children for false gods. Somehow, The followers of those false gods were more potent evangelists than the followers of the true God. Somehow they communicated something that made their God seem more attractive than the God of Israel. And I'm telling you, if we do not evangelize our children for the one true God, the world will. If we do not fill their hearts and their minds with the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the world will fill their hearts and minds with the person of the Antichrist. In just one generation, Israel went from victory to apostasy. One generation. The same truth can be seen in America. Quote here from Jean Getz says In the last fifty or sixty years our whole value system has changed. If we go back to the beginning of our American culture, it's easy to te- to detect that our society reflected a biblical value system in our marital and family life, in our business ethics, in our recreation and entertainment activities, in our academic in- academic institutions and in government. Biblical precepts and principles were a part of the fabric of our society. We were a nation built upon the value system that grew out of the Hebrew Christian ethic as spelled out in the Bible. Even our civil laws were forged out of Scripture. If you don't know that or you deny that, you don't know American history. That is American history. This nation was founded upon biblical principles. And those things were still relatively upheld just 50 or 60 years ago, just a generation or two ago. I have this chart here that I want to show you. The white circle being biblical values, the black circle being cultural values. And that one on your left represents about 50 or 60 years ago when there was a considerable overlapping of cultural values and biblical values. That even American culture to a large degree reflected the things spoken of in the Bible. And then on the right you have a look at society today. We see a moving apart of of the values of our society in America and biblical values and ideals. And now we see that there's very little space where they overlap and intersect. That we are rapidly and very rapidly moving away from the Word of God and the person of God. We want Him out of our schools. We want Him off our money. We want Him off our buildings. And we are reaping the consequences of those things as a nation daily in the destruction of our youth, we are reaping the consequences of those things. And the previous generation who knew the Lord and who practiced biblical concepts in society experienced the frog in the kettle syndrome. The frog sits in a kettle of warm water and you begin to heat up the water. And because that change is very slow, the frog doesn't realize that he's beginning to cook in that water until it's his death. And in the same way, because the change was seemingly slow, Christians have been caught unaware, ever increasing in their worldliness, boiling in the midst of a hot, worldly culture that has penetrated the church. And we look around, and we see that we're not any different from the world. We're to be salt and to be light, but we're not any different. And we say to people, be a Christian. And they say, why? Why? You look like me. You act like me. You do what I do. Why should I be a Christian? That would only restrict the things that I could do. That is what they think when you share with them. Because we boiled in the waters of the world. And there was a third reason why those stones needed to be set up. And we see that in verse 24 of Joshua 4. Joshua 4, verse 24. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So those stones were to be set up for that current generation to remember for the generation to come and for all the inhabitants of the earth, those even outside of Israel, these stones were to be a testimony to them of who God is and what God has done. And, and so there ought to be memorials in our life that are a testimony to us right now, to our children, and to the world around us of who God is and what God has done. And often these memorials that we set up in our lives are just changes. They're those change points in life. There are those times where we say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's worldly, that's destructive, that doesn't glorify Jesus Christ. I'm not going to do that anymore. And we set up a memorial there. And and we draw that boundary line that we need to have as Christians. And we're able to look at it and say, yep, no, I remember who the Lord is and what he's done. I'm not going there. And the next generation comes and they go, my parents don't do that. They don't speak like that. They they don't follow this thing. And and it's a light and a compass for them. And the world looks. And they see that memorial, that decision, that marker, that line of demarcation that we've set up. And it speaks to them of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And then there was to be a second pile of stones. We read in verse 9. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan. Now, those other stones, they were taken from the middle of the Jordan, carried eight miles to Gilgal. Joshua had gone back with those men into the middle to pick up those stones, but Joshua sends them on to Gilgal. And I love the picture of the heart of the leader here, of Joshua. He says, I'm going to stay right here, where the ark of God is, for just a little longer. I'm just going to bask in the glory of this moment. That the waters of the Jordan are heaped up some 20 miles north of me right now and it's dry all the way to the Dead Sea and I am standing in the Jordan during the time of the harvest when it overflowed its banks on dry ground. You know what? This is too good. I'm gonna stay here near the person in the presence and the power of the Lord and I'm gonna set up my own little memorial. It's not about the nation. It's not about others. It's just me celebrating the Lord. And so right there, he has this spontaneous moment of worship this spontaneous moment of adoration. And He takes 12 stones and He piles them up right there in the middle of the Jordan. If you have an NIV, it's got a reading that I I don't think is the correct one. It, It makes it sound like they're just speaking of the one memorial in Gilgal. But if you have New American Standard, New King James, Old King James, New Living Translation, it's very clear and I believe it's right that this is a second memorial. That first one was for the nation and the next generation, and the peoples. This one was just between Joshua and his God. I love it. Leading the nation in personal devotion. He piles up 12 stones right there. You know, pretty soon that ark of God would leave, and that water would come back downstream, and it would cover those stones. Nobody else would see them, but the Lord. This is a memorial that's just for the Lord. It's not for the next generation. It's not for the world to see. It's just for the Lord. What do you do? What do you have that's just for the Lord? Just for the Lord. Lord, this is just between you and me. This is our little pile of rocks. Nobody else is going to see it. The waters are going to cover it. But Lord, it's just us. And I'm just doing it, Lord, because I'm so thankful. I'm just recognizing right now, Lord, that this momentous occasion in my life where you're bringing us into the fullness, it's not anything I did. It's not about who I am. It's about who you are and what you've done. And so, Lord, I, I'm just building this memorial. What do you have that's just between you and Jesus? Nobody else sees it, but you can point to it and he could point to it. Yeah. That's our moment of celebration. I, I think the Lord wants those in our lives. Corey Tenboom was a girl who, during the Holocaust, her family took in Jews and and hid them when the Nazis were searching for them. And in her later years, she had quite a speaking ministry and she was very impactful and and influential within Christianity. And when she would speak and relay these incredible stories, she wrote the book, The Hiding Place, among other books, uh, people would would, would heap praises upon her. Corey, your life was so amazing and and the things that you're sharing, they're so wonderful and you are such an inspiration to us. And I read somewhere that what Corey Ten Boom would do is is all those compliments that came her way, she would uh, receive them like flowers. You know, somebody would Corey, you're such an inspiration. She would receive it like a flower. Uh, The stories, they're they're so she would receive it like a flower. The way that you spoke, she would receive it like a flower. And she said that afterwards when she would go out into the parking lot and nobody was watching and nobody else was there, that she would take those flowers, so to speak, that she gathered and she would present them as a bouquet before the Lord and say, Lord, this is your praise, not mine. That was your doing, not mine. It's about who you are, not me. And she would present that bouquet to the Lord. That's what Joshua is doing right here, putting it right back on the Lord. And it says in 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. And those two piles of stones would become a testimony and a reminder. A testimony and a reminder. And you know, we have a New Testament equivalent of those in baptism and communion. Baptism is a testimony. Baptism is where the Christian says, my life no longer belongs to me. I died with Christ I'm identified with Christ. My life is His. The life I live, I live by faith unto Him. That's the believer's baptism. That's why they're baptized, is identifying with the work of Jesus Christ. And so baptism is a sort of memorial stone setting in the life of the Christian. And then communion is a remembrance. Didn't Jesus say, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me? And so we have communion that Jesus gave us a way that we might remember. It's like the stones, but it's even better than the stones because you ingest it. I mean, it's something neat that the Lord did that he said, you break this bread and you drink of this cup and you do so in remembrance of me. Nobody could eat those stones. They could only look at those stones, but we can hold. We can handle. We can remember even to the very innermost of our being. And so we have this New Testament equivalent, baptism and communion. And they stand as witnesses of the fact that God honors faith and works on behalf of those who trust Him. What are the other stones in your life? Do you have some memorials? Do you have some public ones that the world could see and recognize who He is? Do you have some private ones that just the Lord can see that you and Him would celebrate? And now let's wrap it up. Verse 10. For the priests who carried the ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And it came about when all the people had finished crossing that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. Just one very brief point about that. The priests held their posts until all was accomplished. They stayed where the Lord told them to be. I want you to get this point. They stayed where the Lord told them to be. They held the line. They stayed at their post. Very literally, they were holding the post that held the ark. But they stayed at their post. God had stationed them there in the middle of the Jordan. Now that place took faith. Because 20 miles north, there was a wall of water. God knows how high it was. And when God let go, that thing would come and sweep away everything below it all the way down to the Dead Sea took faith for them to stand in their place, but that was a post that God had given them. Listen to me. God has given you a post. Are you holding the line? God has giving you marching orders. There is some person that you're to be lifting up in prayer. There is some person in need that you're to be ministering to. There's some child in Uganda you're to be sponsoring. There's some amputee in Mexico that you're to be ministering to. There's some coworker that you're to be witnessing to. There's some floor in the church that needs to be cleaned. Whatever it is, the Lord has given you marching orders. Don't you abandon your post until all is accomplished. So many times as a pastor, I have Christians come to me and say, the Lord has told me to do thus and so. And I say, praise Lord, then do thus and so. And they begin to do thus and so. But after a time, they grow weary. And they come back and they say, well... I think now I'm going to do this and that and I say to them don't you dare do this and that unless the Lord has told you to stop doing thus and so if the Lord told you to do thus and so you do it till he says you're done don't presume that because some time has elapsed that you must be done he is our general he gives us marching orders when he says hold this post hold this ground you hold it until he says you're done And if you never hear him say you're done, then you're not done until he comes for you. You hold that ground. You occupy, occupy. You monopolize. You tie down. What has the Lord told you to do? Do it until you hear the very clear voice of God say you're done. Now do this. When you are to move, when you are to change direction, he will modify your marching orders. You who are serving the Lord, you know what I'm talking about. There are difficult times and you worm and you wiggle and you look for a way out. There is no way out unless the Lord your God changes your marching orders. You keep marching, soldier. Can you imagine the devastation had they abandoned their post? Had they at some point said, this ark is too heavy now. It's been too long in the Jordan and we're tired of this. And they abandoned their post. I'll tell you what would have happened. The Jordan River would have come crashing down and some two million people would have perished that day had they abandoned their post. If God has you at a post, it's because It's important. He doesn't have his people doing superfluous things. Where does God have you? Persevere, maintain, hold the ground. Verse 12, And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 equipped for war crossed for battle before the Lord uh, to the desert plains of Jericho. There they all are in Gilgal. They would see figs, grapes, pomegranates, the harvest. They had been brought into a place of abundance. They had been brought into a place of abundance. But but remember Gad? Remember the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh? You're going to read about them tomorrow in Numbers 32 in your one-year Bible reading. You're going to read about them tomorrow in Numbers 32. We, We talked about it a few weeks ago. But remember they compromised? On the east side of the Jordan they said this is as far as we want to go we don't want to go any further we've got a lot of kids and we've got a lot of stuff and this seems like a good place for our kids and our stuff so we don't want to go over but the Lord made the warriors go over to help Israel conquer the rest of the land but they left their stuff and their kids behind outside of the promises Now these people are in Gilgal and evening begins to sit and they lay down and they're sitting around the fire and they're looking at this memorial and God has brought them into fullness and abundance from a dry and weary desert. And I just imagine that for those who compromised, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, I just imagine that at that moment they went, gosh, my kids will never see The promises of God. I'm here. I've got a battle with the rest of them. There's no way around the battle. But my wife will never see the promises of God because I chose to compromise. I was the lawyer, I was the man of the house, I was the head of the household. I compromised. My wife will never see the promises. My children will never eat these grapes. Gosh, I wish I didn't do that. They should have repented. They should have ran or swam across that Jordan and grabbed their kids and their wives and said, Get over here. This is too good to miss. You don't want to miss out on this. We made a mistake settling. We want everything that God has for us. They should have done it. They didn't. They would return after some of the battles to the east side of the Jordan. And later on in history when the Assyrians invaded Israel, they would be the first to fall to the Assyrian armies. They would be conquered and utterly destroyed and they would never return to that place that they once thought comfortable. In their compromise, they would be destroyed. Verse 15, and we're done. Now the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they came up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests saying, come up from the Jordan. And it came about when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over its banks as it had before. What an incredible moment in the life of Israel. And it wasn't only an awesome event for them, but you need to know it was a terrifying event for the enemy. You need to know that the inhabitants of Jericho would have been watching as that water was cut off and rolled back. And here came two and a half million people into the land. The enemy saw that water roll back, and the enemy saw those people and said, we are doomed. We are done. It was a war cry and a proclamation of the victory that was to come. Listen to me, Christian. As long as you remain on the east side of the Jordan, the enemy doesn't sweat you. He doesn't need to. You're living a life of compromise. You're no threat to his kingdom. He doesn't need to be mindful of you the moment you get your feet wet and get over that Jordan and set up that memorial and draw that line and occupy that camp and begin to experience that fullness, you better believe the enemy learns your name. You better believe at that moment the enemy says, "Uh uh-oh, here's a Christian that's really doing it. Here's a Christian that's on the move. He's going forward, he's taking land, and I know who his general is. His name is Jesus Christ, and I am doomed. When you move forward in your Christian faith, you remind the enemy of his future, and Jesus Christ is the victor over him. Amen? Lord, thank you for this incredible historical event that you've let us look at. Lord, minister it to our hearts. Deepen our hearts, Lord. Pray that today, across the sanctuary, men and women be setting up memorials unto you, drawing lines of demarcation, engaging in acts of remembrance, declaring your praises from one generation to the next. Lord, you are good and awesome and worthy. Holy Spirit, come now. Remind us of all that Jesus has taught us. Remind us of all that he has done. We want you to have the fullness of our hearts, Lord. We seek your face.